0: What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin
1: Swacker. Dave, what's going on, man? Not much, man. It's, uh, it's the spring, and we're still getting movie delays, <laughs> so how normal is it really? Don't yeah, know.
0: Well, what are the ones this week? Paramount?
1: fair amount yeah top gun maverick moves to november mission impossible seven moves to may 2022 that's the two big ones yeah
0: are you you excited for top gun maverick
1: fuck yeah that trailer is great this trailer is really good i mean it it looks a lot like tom cruise doing mission impossible stuff just Mm -hmm. you know a little more toned down and it's got like who's jay ellis and um glenn powell and miles teller like it's it's got people i like so i'm totally in
0: yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Planes, flying fighter jets. I don't know if it's totally my thing, but the trailer does look really great. And uh, I'll I'll watch pretty much any action movie Tom Cruise does at this point. So, I mean,
1: think about it. It's perfectly set up. It's like, we don't need you anymore. We got our drones. Dog fighting is an a- ancient art. Yeah. And then, then what's he going to say? It's like, yeah, but you can't teach this or something. Like, it's it's going to be great. Can't
0: wait. You can't take the human element out of it.
1: Yeah. You already know uh, the beats. That's all good. Anyways,
0: <laughs> if you are uh tuning into this podcast, give us a subscribe down below. Uh hit that follow button on Twitter at nostalgiapod and go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod if you want to listen to this any other way other than YouTube. Um Dave, we have to start with some sad news today. And as a resident of Westchester, I'm feeling particularly sad about this. Because uh, DMX, Earl Simmons, rap legend, Mm. passed away uh, late last week. I think it was Friday. Um, He'd been in the hospital after a drug overdose. Uh, I believe he had a heart attack, potentially more than one. um, And was fighting for his life for about a week and finally passed away after there had been some false reports that he had passed away earlier in the week um what was your reaction to all of this
1: yeah obviously very sad for a lot of reasons i mean in general he was 50 that's just too young to be losing someone right i think that goes without saying but yeah i mean DMX has not been one to avoid issues he's had substance troubles in the past legal issues in the past as well so I wasn't surprised to see anything pop up like that, but to see him just straight up die is like,
0: damn,
1: again, mm-hmm. like, I think it's just, it's just sad and it, it's just a loss for the community because even though he wasn't exactly um, making the best work as far as late period rappers go, like he hasn't really made too much noise in a long time, but he still was really revered and moving in circles that you wanted to be a part of right like seeing like clips being shared now of him talking to jay-z from like a year or two ago and just watching him shoot the shit with anyone you know because he's one of a few that can really speak to a lot of you know his music experiences it's just that's the kind of stuff you just wish wasn't lost i think at the end of the day yeah and
0: Uh, There was a uh, clip going around where he had done an interview, I believe, back in February of this year saying, you know, if I if I died tomorrow, like I lived a good life. And I think there's like some like peace that comes with that. But also, I think some sadness and the idea that, you know, he uh, I think he he seemed to have some idea that maybe the way he was living or his health wasn't always um, the best, but seeing the story shared about him of like just real genuine kindness and sincerity. Um, You know, there was a a great one about he was a first class on a plane with this woman and, and her uh, teenage daughter and giving them tickets to their show and just having like a real uh, awesome interaction. There's a great Twitter thread about that. I saw people posting the uh, Rudolph the red nose reindeer rendition that he does, which is just, an all-time remix of that yeah uh, yeah they, i mean he just seemed like a really good guy uh underneath the obviously tough guy rep persona he right. had seems like he was tough in a lot of ways too
1: oh definitely definitely and i mean mu- mu- musically i think that was a big part of him but yeah, yeah i mean speaking his genuineness it's like there were stories of him taking time out of his day to like really just sit down and talk to like some homeless person he had just come across and not just like hand him some money and pat him on the back but actually like sit and just be with them for like a long stretch of time like he really seemed to sympathize with that kind of struggle because he went through a lot so much on his own and it took him a long time to even become a big artist like, he, he didn't really get successful till his late 20s right which is pretty uncommon for hit rappers but i mean his, and that's the thing it's like I actually remember meeting someone in college whose favorite rapper of all time was Dmx, which was pretty uncommon because given our age, we were not the most musically uh, cognizant at the time of DMX's peak, right? I mean, it's only a, really a few years, but he was really running New York uh, at that time, you know, post Biggie and Tupac uh, as kind of like a extension of gangster rap, but really a antithesis to the rising shiny suit era that Diddy was leading. Uh, in new york and i mean everyone knows the hits at this point but really i think those first three records that came out in 98 and 99 are really seminal and um really influential and i mean you can see his influence still today like uh people like denzel curry and mm-hmm. jpeg mafia rico nasty slow tie even exodus and all cited site dmx as a big influence you can see that right like he, he no one really seemed to try and bite who Dmx was. It didn't really seem like that's something you could do again because he was really genuine in everything about him, and it's a big part of the music.
0: Yeah, it's it's crazy because when I think about Dmx, certainly you know some of some of his songs come to mind. You know, Rough Rough Rider's Anthem I think is probably the number one for me, but his voice is just so unique no one has that dmx growl you know yeah. and the, the bar his yeah and his ad libs too we're where just always so good what y'all really want like, it's mm-hmm. like things like that uh yeah i mean larger than life figure and um, feels like too often we're talking about these type of people burning out too soon so
1: yeah totally again Getting like lost mf doom again randomly died last year like out of nowhere you know stuff just really sad um i think the best clip by and it's a clip that was shared pretty regularly in general even before dmx passed but dmx at woodstock 1999 uh just because it's an incredibly legendary performance you know no background vocals as energetic as you expect dmx to be but also if i'm not mistaken it was the biggest live crowd for a hip-hop performance at the time like damn near 200 000 people to see dmx a year plus into him his real fame at that like and obviously woodstock 99 total shit show but by all accounts that was one of the uh better moments of it you know um that, that but crowd, I mean, just watch, watch that set it's, it's insane yeah that crowd is like eating out of the palm of his hand the whole time
0: he's just running back and forth and it just seems like it goes on forever. It's almost just like he's playing to like the entire world. It feels like at times in that video. So, pretty uh, pretty amazing. Definitely check that out. And uh, yeah, play uh, play some DMX this week in his honor. Give him those spins. Um, why don't we move on though to uh, you know uh, someone that people you know say kind of is in the same line as DMX, Taylor Swift, um, dropping her the the Taylor version of Fearless, mm. uh, her re-recording of her album that's going to be 13 years old this year dropped into that november of 2008 um yeah you know one i i believe this one of the songs that came off it is a new song because there's some some additional tracks at the end um mr pretty fine i believe it's called Mm um you know really making some waves this is all uh, uh very public. I don't know if "stunt" is the right word, but tactic by Swift to mm-hmm. basically subvert the uh, Scooter Braun issue, where he owns her masters, and mm-hmm. you know this is her creating her own masters of right, these songs in a sense. Um, this is the first full recording we've gotten like this. We've heard some singles dropped before. Dave, what what do you think of all this? Is it how, did you listen to the album? Did you give it a, a chance?
1: I listened to some of the new songs and like like you said, it's not only Fearless, but it's also a number of songs that had come out at that time that were not on Fearless originally, as well as six songs from the vault recorded at that time, but not actually released for public consumption until now. And of course, some of those, you know, with the new mixing, and, you know, Marion Morris is on one of these tracks. Marion Morris, of course, was not actually creating that song in 2008, 2007, but um. It's also important to note that Scooter Braun does not own Big Machine Records and Taylor Swift's catalog anymore. He actually has sold that company to a different investment fund. So it's actually even more anonymous, really, who owns the first uh, six Taylor Swift uh, master album master recordings. Anyway, um, it I, I find the whole premise very interesting because for a lot of angles, but you see, you, you've seen complete buy-in from the Swifties, right? Taylor's version is the only version we stream now because we're putting money in Taylor's pocket, right? She controls it. Yeah, no real problem with that. And from what I've gathered, and I did listen to some of it, she intended to replicate the songs, and despite the fact that she's 31 now, not 18, uh, she did a pretty good job replicating most of it. And like, there's like, I guess there's subtle differences in like her slightly lower voice in life you know due to age but like it's more or less replication and it's been funny seeing the reactions of hardcore fans for noticing the cell differences and how Taylor singing those songs and singing those lyrics that were more natural for an 18 year old than they are for a 31 year old seeing those reactions has been pretty interesting to me but uh it's definitely a unique prospect because this kind of gambit to retake back your catalog by doing something you can do by re recording once that, uh, uh, clause in the contract expires, uh, only so many artists could attempt this with any hope of success. And of course, Taylor Swift is probably at the top of the list these days, hence why she's done it.
0: Yeah. You know, the, uh, I think the buy-in is really the, the hard part, right? Because, You think about a song like love story um you know i i was listening to quite a bit um uh, white horse this weekend you belong Mm -hmm. with me like these are these are tracks that i mean are like legit timeless hits at this point you know songs that um are just pop gold and the fact that basically taylor was just like yep yeah, i'm going to re-record these and everybody just like now this is the only version it is insane to me because you're right like you and you think about the perspective that these songs were written from was someone who was in high school you know she was 18 at the time that this was released 15 is on this album and she's singing this now twice the age of the the person in that song and so to hear a 30 year old singing about the experience of a 15 year old freshman in high school is kind of strange and i think that like higher vocal range actually works a lot better for some of these songs not that the song the songs on this version sound bad i think they all sound pretty great actually it's just kind of a strange dynamic and uh it just shows the power that she has over her fan base that people are just like yep this is it now it's insane right
1: It was pretty shrewd to start with Fearless in this re-recording plan because obviously Diamond Album, as you said, the two big hits, Love Story and You Belong With Me, eight and seven times platinum, you know, NBD. Pretty good. But (laughs) I think the next piece to look for is will all the programming on digital streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music, will all the programming remove those original versions and switch to this? Because Taylor really can't control how this music is programmed, obviously. I've, she has she a big pull as a featured artist on Republic Records and being Taylor Swift, but she can't make them do anything with the programming. So I'd be very interested to see if that actually happens. I think at this point, it's pretty safe. And there's a great uh, feature that came out a few months back on Vice about the business implications of this. But it seems like all licensing that will be done in the future for any of the songs off this album it seems very likely that companies are going to approach taylor and license the new versions which means the value of the old fearless masters has drastically declined so depending on what happens with the programming and how much of this buy-in really sticks especially for people you know the programming is more important for the non-swifties right because like the average person probably isn't going to care which version of love story happens to come on if they even notice the difference. Right. But if the programming follows suit with how we know the Swifties uh, will operate, perhaps the, the, the values decrease to the point where maybe Taylor has the opportunity to actually buy back her catalog at a reduced rate. Cause remember she did say she wanted to buy it back and they were kind of stringing her along, wanted her to record more albums and then give her the opportunity slowly piece by piece. Right. And frankly, I hope this happens because I don't think we need Taylor Swift to waste more time re-recording five more albums. I'd rather Taylor Swift make new music. You so, want more
0: indie Taylor albums, I don't. Right? Did,
1: I, did, I don't need ever more part three. I didn't say that. <laughs> but in general, I mean, she's 31. It's not like she's going anywhere, but like, right. I, I would just hope, I wish that would happen personally. So it's remains to be seen, I guess. But uh, very interesting premise but again let's not forget that taylor swift is one of the few people that could pull something this, like this off and even if she doesn't control our masters she's still hella rich so it's like there's worse issues of master recording squabbles between artists and labels than taylor swift we can't forget that either
0: yeah uh i i i would like her to re-record a couple like i i i would be interested to see her like take another shot of like reputation Hmm. Or something like that, right? Like let, let let's see her put a twist on it that maybe okay. could could be taken differently. But yeah, yeah I don't you, need. If you're to changing it, one.
1: that's a lot different than trying to replicate it. This was fear. This fearless okay. Taylor's version is very much intended to be replication. replication. Yeah. So I think it, it it depends on the goals for sure. Yeah,
0: true, definitely. Um, well, we'll we'll stay tuned on that and be talking about Taylor Swift uh, because. She's very famous and popular, <laughs> but we're going to talk about someone a little bit less, less famous, but I think uh, also incredibly talented, and that's Miguel, um, who I feel like strangely enough has somehow become like one of the like top male vocalists somehow in mm. uh, at least R&B, yeah. but it, it, definitely I, I don't know if I would if I would have expected to be saying that about him like. 4 or 5 years ago i mean adorn is a legit a banger of a song just one of the all time great r&b uh, sexy jams but um I-, I don't know if i'm like a super miguel fan maybe you're a little bit more into him than i am but i w- wouldn't say any of his other tracks have ever like popped off to me like that and he's dropping this ep art dealer chic 4 the fourth uh you know of, of this series that he's been re-releasing the first three which were self-released back in 2012 um and this has some new tracks on it some new recordings but i guess like dave just give me your temperature and miguel you're you know are you a fan and then also what did you think of this uh this art dealer chic four
1: yeah well that's why i was interested to see this pop up just because we haven't talked about miguel in a while the last album he came put out was war and leisure at the end of 2017 which actually did have probably one of my favorite Miguel songs, Skywalker with Travis Scott. I think that one's incredibly sticky. And I think one of the better attempts from Travis at doing a more crossover feature. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a while for Miguel. I think he had some original songs come out in 2019, nothing in 2020. So it, it's been a while, especially for someone of his stature, as you said, he's at the top. I think he has a nice combo of being at the top, both critically and, uh, commercially when it comes to art a lot of times it's one or the other right artists like Brent Fiaz and Givion not popular artists artists like Chris Brown very popular but haven't made good music in a long time seems like Miguel's been able to for the most part keep both of those tracks going but we just haven't had a lot of music in a while and it's kind of like that James Blake EP that popped up you know was last year sometime just cool to get a taster remind you oh yeah. Miguel. I like Miguel. I like to hear another album. And there's four tracks here. And I like two of them. And the other two I didn't like too much. But <laughs> it's it's a taste to repeat. It just to remind you that Miguel Miguel's still out there. So looking forward to more, really.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, I on first listen i think the two in the middle triangle love and thinking out loud really stood out to me mm-hmm. um i think what i really liked about triangle love was just like how heavy the bass was on that and and a lot of this was very like these these tracks were very produced and especially for someone like miguel who just has such an amazing mm. voice to be like yeah. really like putting a lot of like mix and uh different like experimenting on his voice kind of felt like an interesting choice to me but he also had just like these like crazy synths almost in every single song and I was like okay I'm down with this vibe like let's just see where we're going here so I think there's some things to like but also some I have some questions about maybe what another Miguel album's gonna look like but what were the tracks that stood out to you?
1: yeah the first two Funeral and Triangle Love I really enjoyed the just how bass heavy those drums were with Funeral I thought it was a nice mix with the vocals and then Triangle Love also similar in terms of the drums I think Miguel's performance is really nice on that one. And then it has a really (laughs) hard to miss uh, sample to end the track, which is uh, from the 2004 movie Closer. Julie Roberts and Clive Owens characters talking about uh, sex life and infidelity and all that stuff. And harkens back to other like raunchy samples, like famously Biggie's Respect, for example. It's It's always funny to see that, but this was quite like quite graphic, I guess you could say, right? Yeah. Oh, well, you
0: know, with, with Miguel, he's not gonna he's right. not gonna pull punches
1: on that. Yeah, if anything, I expect it. I'm surprised you haven't gotten more of this from the weekend, to be honest, because the weekend is truly and Miguel's not that far off, I guess. But truly, like you know, I have sex all the time. That's what I do.
0: <laughs> hey, I mean, uh, there, I guess there's worse things to brag about, right? Um, That's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I'm I'm sure we'll be getting something, you know, more more from him soon. So we'll be talking more about him and check out the the nostalgia best of 2021 playlist that's in the show notes for this and on spotify um for one of these tracks but dave it's time to talk about your very good boys your number one boys brock hampton and i I say that because really you you turned me on to brock hampton with your your fandom so uh I definitely am excited to hear your thoughts on this. We've now been able to review two Brockhampton albums since we started the pod uh, three. together. Three. Well, I, I didn't, re- I didn't review one of them. That was you alone. We've, we've done iridescence and ginger together. I think you did the other one. On your oh, own. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. This is the third yeah. one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I did saturation three solo. That's right.
0: And uh, we are going to be ranking Brockhampton albums sometime next week. So stay tuned for ranking 2021, the year of rankings.
1: Yeah, youtube.com slash nostalgia pod hit that up now
0: but here we are roadrunner new light new machine the the second to last album from brockhampton of course according to uh kevin abstract was yeah was. allegedly
1: saturation trilogy was also the last brockhampton album back in 2017 so <laughs> uh to that point perhaps that's a suggestion at the rca records contract famously six albums three years fifteen million dollars there's been some speculation in the Brockhampton fandom, just how many albums are left on that deal. It was signed in early 2018. So we know Iridescence and Ginger and Roadrunner are on that. That's three. This other one coming out in 2020 before does Kevin Abstract's solo album, Arizona baby count. Mm. It was released on RCA. You can check those notes. I don't know. Uh, Amir Vann's EP, Emmanuel, was not on RCA, so that probably doesn't count. But either way, that seems to suggest there's another album missing on the deal. So, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll probably call bullshit on there being only two Brock Handom albums left. But I think we've said from the jump, given the way these guys move and talk, that I would not be surprised to see these guys take a hiatus, work with other people, branch out again stop living with each other full time for years at this point. So the rock and dynamic has definitely changed uh, over the years. But yeah, I think I think there's more albums in our future. I think most people probably think that.
0: Well, and Dave, why don't we uh, why don't we set the table just a little bit? You know, Iridescence, I think after the Saturation Trilogy, we were like, this is still really good. Like this is really interesting music. Some real high highs on there, with some real duds as well. Ginger felt pretty forgettable. You know, like I I was even reading, just I just looked over the the ginger uh, track list, and I was like, I know sugar, but I don't really recall many of these
1: songs. No halo was a nice highlight for me, in that Saint Percy sample. But yeah, for the most part, Ginger was a letdown for sure in 2019. And
0: so, what were your expectations going into Roadrunner?
1: right uh and i think that's the thing right we talked we talked about iridescence like wow this is a unlike the saturation trilogy pretty obviously but i think it's still largely commendable music a lot of really interesting stuff there but because it was more uh, distorted and experimental it's not as easily accessible as some of those saturation era bangers so it's just different but still well made and, but ginger as you said just kind of underwhelming and forgettable stuff, but also unexpectedly carried that moodiness over, right? Post the, mm-hmm. everything that happened with Amir leaving the group, they seem to still kind of be in the feels, but it, Ginger didn't feel like as good of a time in the process, right? Fast forward, uh what, a year and a half now to Roadrunner. What, listening to this album, listen, reading the press, you understand there's still stuff to be upset about with Brockhampton, notably uh, Joba's father committed suicide. And that is definitely impacting some of Joba's performances on this. So we'll talk about those songs later, but this is just way more accessible. I think these songs are really fun and there's still a lot of range on here. Like they're actually at a time as poppy as they've ever been, but they still really brought it with the raps, which I was really happy about because that was what I was a little afraid of with Ginger because Ginger has their biggest song ever. Sugar is the biggest song of Brock Hanton's career. The only song of theirs to go platinum. Their only song to go gold would be Bleach off Saturation 3. Both those songs are sung choruses. You know, Ryan Beatty, their friend, uh, Bareface sings as well on Sugar. Kevin sings. I'm sorry, but I don't need Kevin to sing. I want Kevin to rap, you know? So I was just a little worried about what direction they were going to go in. But I really like what they did with Ron Rudder. Apparently, during the pandemic, they made three albums worth of music getting to this point, which is not surprising, given we know how much they like to work.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think they set the tone for this album just with the first track. Buzz Cut with Danny Brown. Obviously, it was a single, so we kind of knew this was going to be on and be a, probably a highlight. Um, I think this is just a really great track. It's a lot of fun. Um, I think Danny Brown kind of comes in at the end and like really just like delivers the hammer um, and, and kind of sets the tone for the album. But like you talk about, they really do kind of go up and down in terms of tone, but it all seems to fit. And they try on a lot of different hats here. You know, like you mentioned how poppy they are, but I think some of the biggest highlights for me are moments when they get to be jazzy or funky or even kind of like i like dare i say like kid cutty-ish in some sense like mixing in some like rock like elements into their their rapping like for me a, a clear highlight on this is the light which is a song uh that joba and uh, kevin abstract have, have each have a verse on but it has just this like guitar solo in mm-hmm. the background with these like heavy drums like rock drums and i'm like this shit fucking goes and it, it's it's heavy material talking about you know it has a voicemail from joba setting the uh the, the tone of the song you know he said he's in the house his father commit suicide in and then they both kind of go on to talk about some of their struggles but that that track, The Light, just really stands out to me as like a central piece for the album. Yeah. Well, talk to me about some of the tracks that stood out for you that you liked the most.
1: Yeah, I also really like The Light. And this one, Roadrunner, was cool to me because the progression of the group is obviously easier to track. But in terms of like the group members, there was unexpected new developments. If you remember back in Saturation, Joe was barely a performer back then, is and even with the group in the very beginning now Jabari previously just the producer is actually on the mic too. And it's like, geez, they just pull people out of their ass at this point. It's so (laughs) funny. Uh, But yeah, I, and Joba has made lots of highlight moments over the past few albums, just because of his unique delivery Mm -hmm. on the mic. And I mean, obviously remember him really spazzing the fuck out and boogie back on Mm -hmm. saturation three, for example, but in this one, just hearing him really bring with the pen and uh I, I think I think he's tremendous on the light, but he's really good throughout this. Um scratch, you know, if he's in production, don't shoot up the party. It's yeah. fucking G Funk. Like, what the fuck? It's That's so awesome. Good. You know? Yeah. And like I Romiel, I just I'm want like, Ramil to work with everyone. Like he did that one song with Calayuchis, but for the most part, I really haven't heard other stuff he's done outside the band. But he's just such a talent and how he like arranges stuff. And, and we know they've spoken to their affinity for nerd. And I believe they've spoken on Cuddy and Tyler and stuff. So you understand where this is all coming from, but there's just a lot of dumb, dumb, good tracks on this, man. Like Mm -hmm. I, I was really pleased with this and it's actually funny to look and this is tracking to be there least selling album in like four albums and i was like jesus christ because like G- ginger was a, was a pretty successful album for them from the jump first week mm-hmm. and stuff and i wasn't wasn't expecting that and i feel like people are gonna be missing out because like if you were a rock canton fan i don't know how you can't be pleased with this there's just so many moments not to mention they finally acted like an rca records uh managed groove because there's hell and guests on this really for the first yeah. time in a rock canton project you know apart from like the Dominic Fike appearance on the Kevin Solo album, there really hasn't been anyone high profile at all. And even Don Fike wasn't high profile at that time, you know? But this one, like JPEG Mafia, okay, well, you know, he's not the most mainstream guy, but no, no, we got fucking Ace Rocky on this, you and know?
0: With, with a uh, like Caribbean accent and
1: like toned down
0: voice. He, he fucking kills it, man. He's so good I, on this. I thought
1: Rocky was great. And God, I need new Rocky music, man. I was really excited because <laughs> he's good on this. Uh, Sean Mendez is on this. Yeah, well, uh, Charlie Kevin Wilson. I don't fuck with no white boys unless the dude Shawn Mendes famous line <laughs> now you got Sean Mendes on this right Charlie Wilson as you said uh, man so, so satisfying really and I thought all the guests were used quite well they're definitely not people that would ever tack on somebody for fame and they actually spoke with The Guardian a few weeks back about you know the desire to get a hit and how you know Ginger their biggest song didn't quite become a true mainstream hit and like Ramil wants hits and Dom speaks about wanting to just stick to what they are and not be worrying about stuff like that. And it's interesting to see the guests they pick. Right. And like, I don't, do I expect any of these songs to be hits? probably not. Again, given those first week sales, that's not a good start anyway, but I think they did a really good job. And I think my favorite guest spot though would be early on jpeg mafia peggy fucking spazzes on chain on absolute spazzes, man so many good lines the the vine reference for example yeah oh man so many so many moments so many moments
0: yeah there there's some really great moments and you know we i think maybe even one of the best songs we haven't really talked about is the longest song windows yeah that song is so fucking funky and jazzy and like it's just like everything brockhampton does well where they take these like bits of ideas and somehow like just let them like flourish and grow and make something great. I never would have expected to hear a song like this because like you've, uh, we've heard them do like jazzy, you know, you even think about something like wildfire 1999 you're like, Yeah. yeah, you know, this is kind of in the same vein, but they just like, there's like just a saxophone solo that just like goes off in the middle of this song. There's like flutes coming out, like out of the woodwork. It's fucking crazy. I love it. One of my favorites for sure
1: that definitely one of my favorites as well windows the only song on roadrunner to feature all seven of the main performers Mm -hmm. on one track um actually there's a physical version of this album that has four additional bonus tracks i have not heard those yet but looking forward to checking those out as well um yeah man i think my favorite verse overall is that first verse on don't shoot up the party from kevin you know kevin has spoken about like you know more political things and more uh social things obviously as an out gay black man and his experience with that with his family and also as being a man in america writ large but i think he does a good job and again combine that with a song that also fucking slaps it's a good combo
0: for sure uh album of the year for you so far oh
1: i hadn't thought of it like that um i mean we haven't had too many too many big albums right
0: I think it is for me. I'm, I'm yeah, I mean, it's my it's it. my
1: favorite. It's definitely my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I really need to give it a few more listens, to be honest, because a lot of times, like, I'm, I have my guard up listening to Brockham. I like, oh, what are they going to do? Because they're such an neglected group. And I don't actually let the verses really, like, sink in until like, I give them a few more listens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, preparing for the rankings we're going to do next week, I'm listening to a lot of their older songs as well. And it's like, um, you just sometimes like the fourth verse from Matt or Merlin or whoever it is. It's like, oh man, like all these guys have something a really little unique about them. They know how to bring in because you have someone really talented arranging like Ramil. and like, they just have a great chemistry and uh, I'm looking forward to that second album. I hope it does stick to coming out this year, but even if it doesn't, we'll obviously wait. I would love to hear a lot of the other albums they haven't released. For example, um, I think the most popular <laughs> Uh, Wishlist album from that would be Puppy because that was the album they made uh, before Iridescence. It was supposed to come out, and then everything that Amir happened, they basically scrapped it. So that was probably really rap heavy and had a lot of good Amir verses. And it's like, ah, we'll just never hear that one, huh?
0: Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> you know, it's probably going to be the sort of thing we'll we'll get eventually, but um, yeah, it's yeah, I, I'm re- really happy that uh, one, you got me into them, but also that. They've just continued to continue like be themselves and experiment. And yeah. they're they're one of the most interesting groups out there for sure. So check them out if you aren't into them.
1: Also, I think we should one more thing we should talk about is in that Guardian piece, Kevin basically expressed frustration with the boy band label at this point. You know, label they they've they've openly they embraced, wanted, yeah. you know, best boy band since One Direction. But I I think they feel like it's not say played out, but it's run its course where they've you know subverted the label and did everything themselves and made mm-hmm. non-traditional music and all that and now at this point i think they just want those reins taken off but i would like to see how that plays off like with their fans like we really identify with that boy band label and really identify with songs like sugar right which are more mm-hmm. of a piece with that boy band description but yeah it seems like they're they're actually what we really call them from the jump which is a hip-hop Collective group, yeah, that does all kinds of genres, really.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's the sort of thing where they don't really like being labeled, no matter what it is, um, and uh, I I respect that, and it, it's also very like this generation and this time, which I, I like, but uh you also can't have it both ways, where you know you <laughs> you say label me as this, and then people label you as that, and you're like, no, don't label me, right? <laughs> yeah, um, but. You know, fluidity is important. So be respectful and uh, we'll call them whatever they want to call them. Why don't we move on to someone who probably would not respect Brock Hampton's wishes to be called whatever they want. Joss Whedon, who's uh, come under fire as that was, even as I was saying, I was like, this is ruthless. Uh, Joss Whedon coming under fire a lot recently. A lot of allegations of abuse on set, Um, whether it's Ray Fisher, um, you know, on the set of Justice League, or um, you know, former actresses from the, his Buffy the Vampire Slayer days. Um, yep, and named, Angel as well. Yeah, that they there was a rule that they Joss wasn't allowed to be in the room with them alone because of his conduct on set towards. Yeah, them. That, was, that was a, was a younger
1: younger actor at the time. That, yeah,
0: yeah, teenager. not not
1: not good, not good.
0: Yeah, no. So, you know, and and I think also the Snyder cut recently coming out has really brought some of his directing choices come under coming under fire a bit. Mm-hmm. So then the Nevers is coming out. His newest TV creation returned to TV for the first time. I guess if you count Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the pilot for that, yeah, I yeah. guess, 20. I wouldn't count that really. No. It's been a while. Yeah. So like what since Angel? Probably.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Late 2000s. And, really?
0: Yeah, Firefly, Buffy Vampire Slayer, all that should be a happy homecoming for Joss, but uh, is the Nevers that, Dave?
1: No, it's kind of a double whammy, right? Because you have everything going on with Joss Whedon, who notably left the project after uh, production uh, last fall. So really before more allegations had come out, he had already left the project. Um, But now he seems quite disgraced and Mm -hmm. It's now being run by uh, Philippa Gossett. Gossett. Philippa Gossett, right. And I think Joss directed three of the six first batch of episodes we're going to get. Obviously, we're original showrunner, creator, one of the EPs. But he's since left the project. But it's kind of that double whammy, right? He's left the project. He is disgraced due to his own making. And also the show has, has some flaws. So it's like, it's tough. I feel like it's tough to invest, invest in, from all these meta reasons. But at the same time, it's like you have all these other people involved, and again, it's under new showrunner. It's like, hmm, do you punish everything about it because of Josh Sweden? I don't know personally. For me though, the art is the art. The plot of this pilot, not the plot, but the pilot itself, felt awfully messy to me, and. I had a hard time investing in it and at the same time, seeing a lot of the things that are hallmarks of Josh Sweden's television career, strong female characters, feminist ideals. A lot of that rings really hollow now because that is not how Josh Sweden actually was in real life. You know, he was championed for bringing a lot of that to mainstream t- broadcast television and network TV at the time. Right. And yet that's not actually who he was and now you're seeing a lot of those beats that you might recognize from Joss Inc. in the past. But does it feel authentic this time around? I don't know. Because again, like you also have all these performers that you're seeing for the first time in these yeah. roles. And it's like, it's not everything is Joss Whedon. But yeah. to me, I, I just I, I had a hard time with uh, the breadth of characters in the pilot. It feel like there's a lot of room for subplots and uh, side stories that might feel superfluous if not executed on well. And you can just kind of see the spinning of wheels before they actually get spun after one episode. I don't think that's a good sign.
0: Yeah, you know, well, I think we're, and even putting you know the off-camera stuff aside, where I first kind of felt like I wasn't totally interested or on board was, this is what, X-Men or Umbrella Academy or mm-hmm. any of these things where it's like these people are, different have these powers and they live at one complex together whatever you want to call that complex
1: okay recognize these beats
0: yes exactly so it's it's not like a super unknown plot or or premise you then take in all of the different subplots you mentioned the political subplots the crooked cop subplot the Mm -hmm. medical you know crazy doctor evil doctor subplot and then Joss Whedon's like, bitches, I'm on HBO now. Here's some titties for you. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at how all these rich people want to have sex with these people with powers. And it's like, what? Like, we, uh, what? like, what? You're really just like flexing here, Joss. But like, also like with everything you got going on, really maybe could have just cut that part out of the show. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how much it comes into the plot at the end, but uh, geez, uh, just seemed like, and unnecessary, and then you kind of get to like the rest of the show, and it's like some of the powers don't totally make sense. Like, the main character can see the future, but that somehow also makes her a great fighter. Um, I, I don't understand the other main character's power, how she can see electricity and therefore can like just create stuff. A genius, like, <laughs> yes, yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> um, and then like w- the, the serial killer, like villain seems to be a devil now, I, yeah, I guess. And within all of this, like the action scenes were kind of cool. I just didn't find myself totally captivated by it. And I was nah. like, eh, that, that's not a good sign for the first episode of this is.
1: No, looking. this kind of gives me vibes of His Dark Materials early mm-hmm. going, a show we did not stick with. Um, you know, that's a show that just wrapped its second season last year. You know, I, the Nevers, as far as we know there's more episodes coming because they didn't get to finish this first batch due to obvious COVID delays, but six episodes coming for now, five more. But yeah, I agree. Like the, the, the powers and stuff, I was just wondering like, well, what, what is, what what are we going for with this show? Right. You're set Victorian England, all these, you know, captivating women various levels of powers, some kind of X-Men shit going on, avoiding that persecution of society. Meanwhile, we'll also see other parts of the society. It's like there might be good bones to to interesting TV here, but it just feels like it's like a big blob right now after one mm. episode. And you have to really be invested in this kind of genre uh storytelling, I think, to want to push through it, from what I've seen. Yeah. I
0: you know, you asked me uh, before we started recording. This is a show that we might not actually get to the end of and I gave up on his dark materials, um, you know, and you you suck with it. So kudos to you. I actually
1: I, wanted to stick with it and haven't done that yet. So uh, I've only seen the first episode as
0: well. <laughs> oh, so, we, yeah, we, we both gave up on it. Um, and th- this does feel like it's in that range. I'll probably give it another episode or two. Um, but. There's just a lot here, and I don't know if any of it feels worthwhile. I I feel kind of bad for Philip Gossett. You know, like what a what a thankless role to be in, having to come in and like clean
1: this mess up, man. Uh, It's like um, the coach of the Houston Rockets right now. I don't even know who it is. Yeah, I forget. (laughs) First year in the job, it's like you you inherit a big mess, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as far as the acting, I actually found Anna Skelly to be quite charming she's the one who can see electricity mm-hmm. and seems to just be able to invent cool like steampunk things yeah. like ah she's just charming because she kind of reminds me of Saoirse Ronan because she's Irish it's a very simple uh, appeal yeah. I guess but um <laughs> yeah I mean I don't know oh uh,
0: I also just wanted to say I thought the su- the uh superpower where the girl can just sing and do stuff I I hated that. I don't know why, just something about it just seems so corny to me. I was like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um also seeing the scene where they all, you know, become touched is how they put it, which is also like gotta think of mm-hmm. another way to put it after all the stuff with joss whedon Oh, that's um, Jesus, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just I that that was interesting to me because you know, it's got like that fish thing in the sky and then no one remembers it. But I don't know. Like it's it just doesn't feel like enough to warrant keeping going. So We'll see. Anyways, uh, The Never is on HBO. Check it out or don't. But let's move on to some movies that I think we both are probably going to recommend. Uh, we'll start with Mophie. Um, a movie that came out quite a while ago, 2019. And uh, we're just seeing it now. Why is that, Dave?
1: Well, it did some festivals in 2019, but aired in... or premiered in South Africa in March 2020, right before the pandemic started, and then hit uh, VOD in Europe last summer, 2020. So US and Canada are actually the last people to get this movie uh, in terms of distribution, which is, is pretty uncommon, honestly. Um, and, you know, th- this might just be, I'm not too sure why this is, but it might just be because it's uh South African film i guess it is the way the way it moved around in with covid i'm not really sure but either way we finally got it here as well and you know as far as south african filmmakers go like i really didn't have a whole lot of touchstones apart from neil blomkamp who's moved in hollywood of course with district after district nine but this is directed by was it oliver Her- Hermanus? Hermanus, yep yeah and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here because he's a South African man. He is notably mixed race, but this is a white point of view in apartheid South Africa, not the most common uh, narrative to spin. Right? Mm-hmm. Challenging. But yeah, I just had heard this movie was uh, supposed to be pretty good. We finally got a chance to see it. And here we are normal VOD at that normal rental price and, i think it's a lot it's uh definitely gloomy at times not the funnest hang but a lot of commendable things about it i have to say
0: yeah you know i think i think it's well acted which especially for not really having any well-known actors in this is really
1: impressive debut Um, for kyle bummer
0: and i also think it's uh you know at times it's it's easy to probably make these comparisons but i think there's moments where you get some of the tension that you get in things like portrait of a lady on fire Hmm. um, or even some of the like moments in call me by your name yeah call me by your name even though i think has some emotional moments it feels a lot lighter (laughs) than this movie which is obviously um looking at you know a gay a gay man and, and that experience through a very uh difficult lens and challenging lens because it's constant abuse constant uh constantly being told that you are you know wrong you're a criminal you're not supposed to be that way um but i think there's also some really nice moments um ends on a really (laughs) devastating note i'd say um a lot of pain in this movie and like you said putting this during apartheid and i feel like seeing some of it but not really getting out fully into is it. kind of like yeah feeling a, a bit used but it, apparently it is also based off of uh the the writer's experience so right um yeah, well, it adapted Tough. from right right
1: yeah well I, I yeah that that that's really i think the crux of what each audience member has to uh reckon with i guess when watching mophie is that you're set in, you know, early 1980s South Africa, apartheid's alive and well. And this whole the whole prospect of the plot is that all, uh, uh, you know, able-bodied, I think, 16-year-olds and up, whatever it was in South Africa, white ones are conscripted into the army for the ongoing Angola border war between Angola and South Africa. Two years and, of service. Right. And actually Kyle Luke Brummer, our, our lead actor, his dad actually was conscripted in this mm. during this very very event. And at this time, homosexuality is not only uh, mocked and derided and, and hated by society, it's also criminal. And that's kind of our, our, our focus, right? But the movie, I think smartly, even if it's absolutely gutting to see, smartly reminds you of exactly where we are because when we get that train scene, probably like the second scene in the movie, is you remember how just about everyone we're about to see are just virulent, deeply racist people, and I thought that that scene, at that train station, was absolutely horrific, really. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of leave that alone, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really come up again. And you hear like the nationalism and the, the 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 machismo and the toxic masculinity of their training and 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 how they're being hyped up for this conflict but for the most part i think the race angle isn't is again we're sticking to the white pov and again we're focusing on now a a guy who's trying to repress his homosexuality because it's really for his own safety Mm. and there's a there's a lot lot to reckon with with that right it's kind of i guess it was kind of strange to see how race came and went because it's really it's it's a gay story it's not a race story but race is part of every story in the 1980s in south africa you know so it's it's a lot going on
0: yeah i think after that train scene i think the next time you see a black person is when he's on the front lines and you know the they're they're just greeting everybody and they're like yeah, look 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 at the neighbors over here we're gonna have some fun with them later and it's just like a group of black people who are being held prisoner um, right and it definitely feels like I don't know something about it just felt a little bit off not touching more on it but I think there's also obviously parallels to to draw about the idea of like just a different identity during that time not really being accepted um i think the the brutalness of it all you know like i i really felt like those those training scenes and yeah. the the drill sergeant was just so hard to watch and just so like overly brutal for no reason and then you also get some of the quieter moments that are really brutal like when he goes looking for what's his name masson or, or the you know, assassin whatever it was, Stassen, yeah. and he finds the other Soldier who is gay and he has like the scar on his head, and talks about how he had been treated based on his suspected identity as a gay man and just really like brutal stuff to hear and listen to. And
1: right, it's hard, yeah, totally. Uh, the drill sergeant's played by Hilton Pelzer. I gotta say, you get some real shades of full metal jacket, yeah, obviously, in terms of brutal drill sergeants go in film. Um, yeah. And that that's the thing it's like as you're getting more of those scenes, you learn what the title of the movie means, right It's a mm-hmm. slur for gay people in Afrikaans. It's like fuck it's like the movie does not run away from any of that stuff, really, but as you said, the story of our lead is much more subtle and understated again, kind of like I guess how Portugal on fire did a lot it's mm-hmm. a lot a lot of it's uh you know weaving of a relationship and i guess it kind of makes sense right it's like for the sake of these two men there's no consummation there's no just being ourselves and being together it's like no they they've long accepted they can't do that and it's like this is brutal you know it does does not leave you in the best place i guess
0: yeah no absolutely in that ending scene where you know they um nicholas the main character you know and, and stassen go to the beach and feels like they might finally get to like consummate this unrequited love and you know you see him like reach for stassen in the water and he just like misses his hand stassen it's like oh, i'm cold and gets out and then they're sitting together and then he just leaves and leaves him there and it's just like yeah. the the loneliness of Being a gay man at this time, but again, it feels very strange to talk about that with apartheid in the background. Because I'm like, yeah, I can't imagine being a black person in South Africa at this time, and the fear and anxiety of that. It's uh, not 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 to say one undermines the other in any way. It's just it's just a overarching aspect of the story that does feel like it's not necessarily brought about enough.
1: Right, right. And listening to Oliver Hermanis talk about the movie, from what I've gathered, it has been well received in South Africa, notably South Africa is a majority black place. You know, apartheid was minority rule, lest we forget. So it seems like it has been well regarded over there. And I think that's probably the most important audience for this film, to be honest. Um, You know, I think Kai Luke Bremer for being his first film role, I think he had just a little bit of stage experience, but for his first film role to effectively have a, you know, performance like this, where it's a lot of subtlety and not a lot of lines, mm-hmm. definitely leads you to invest in his future career. I for think sure. definitely talented. So, and Oliver Herman's is funny enough because this movie has come out. Uh, it was finished, you know, as far as he's concerned, so long ago, he's had time to pick new roles. He's apparently at adapting a, Kira Kurosawa movie hmm. Kiru. So it's like, huh? Well, that's ambitious to adopt a kurosawa movie. Best of luck to you. Well, interesting.
0: Definitely uh I think it's definitely a movie worth watching. It'll make you think. Um yeah. and it for as much as we might have like uh, identified some detractors, I thought this was really well done. So definitely check that out. Let's also move on to another movie came out a little more recently, Shiva Baby. I don't, know how, I don't know how you
1: pronounce this because is yeah, it Shiva or a Shiva? Neither of us are Jewish, so we don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I'm pretty know? sure it's Shiva. Um, you know, the, the baby part of it is the really interesting word for the title. We'll talk about that. But this is a Emma Seligman um, film, I think this actually might be her first film,
1: directorial debut. Her. Yes, an extension of a short of the same name she had previously made,
0: and again, uh, just like mophie were not seeing a lot of like really well-known actors in this there's maybe you know you'll probably recognize like um fred melamed you know from a lot of things yeah um maybe jackie hoffman um but it really i think molly gordon was the one i recognized most yes Um, more. yeah and then also uh diana agron who i know knew from glee and she she's great in
1: this um we'll talk about <laughs>
0: her in a second well this is a comedy dave did you find this movie to be really funny
1: yeah well <laughs> the obvious comparison you've seen a lot is it's bisexual uncut gems but even more jewish you know <laughs> <laughs> it's and wow. the reason it's uncut gems is because of the claustrophobia and the, the tension tension and the yeah. anxiety that the audience feels throughout because the movie does does not let you get off the hook it's a movie that's what 70 something minutes long yep but does not feel short and that's because of how tension-filled the story is right Brutal. and i really loved it and i actually was dying laughing at the very end at the van scene Mm -hmm. i just i lost it at that at the end there
0: yeah the the van scene i think was the funniest part just because you know like there's like some sort of ending coming you can kind of like relax but yeah, so many moments in this that I feel like I should have laughed at. I just had this like gut wrench in my stomach where I was like, oh, this is so tough to watch. Just like all these interactions go this way and just like the subtext around everything. Yeah. But I think that's what makes this movie so good and so well written is, you know, not only do you have this funny premise where, you know, R- Rachel's Sano uh, or maybe Sana. I yeah. can't, um, plays danielle this you know kind of a teenager who's going to school for a, uh, a what's it is their gender study degree i believe something like and,
1: that make your own major or something yeah she's the butt of many jokes as a result and,
0: and she lives at home with her parents um, you know maybe not living up to the expectations of the rest of the people within this community um, she's on a website called sugar daddy where she finds these men who want to pay her to do things yeah. and she does a real them. thing. yeah and uh you know she goes to uh sit shiva for a community member that's died and uh basically has to interact with her parents and all the other people in this community who are just uh right. on her case about what's actually going on with her in the
1: presence of her sugar daddy
0: it's yes yeah. And, yeah and then the sugar daddy shows up with his who happens
1: to be married with a child it's it's
0: a very recent child it's, it's yeah a lot.
1: <laughs> it's like oh my god you can't imagine right because there's so much going through her head it's like oh shit it's like does she feel bad because she didn't know he was married and it's like and then like he learns more about her life and like how she was lying to him for the money blah 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 it's like huh and i feel like the sugar daddy thing has been more out in the open i don't know it's like it's a secret but like you know seeking arrangements people on the website like it's it's a i feel like it's ripe for more uh exploration which is funny because uh the director has teamed up with adam mckay to make hbo comedy series called sugar about this very thing and i'm like man a week-to-week 30-minute comedy about a sugar baby in like new york or something that yeah. sounds like a great show
0: it, it, like, it really does uh, i like got i was thinking about like that show was it love or whatever it is or not mm-hmm. not not love the other one um on Netflix where they you? kind of follow different characters. Maybe it's you. No, no, I don't I, don't I can't remember, but <laughs> um yeah, they follow like a bunch of different characters, it has like Dave Frank. Modern in Love, it, is it? Something like that. Oh, but uh okay. I feel like that's like the perfect model yeah. for it, and just kind of follow different people around week to week. Um but yeah, no, this this is a great premise. The writing I think is really, really good. I think uh, you know, for for not being a member of, of this community, but uh, yeah. Knowing people within the the Jewish community, and um, also I think some of the stereotypes around like some of the the ways people interact with within this community, they really play up it like some of these stereotypes a bit, but they're really done in a funny way, and I also feel yeah. like pretty respectful way
1: still. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, just really, uh, really good. I, I, yeah, I really I... like the aunts like who are just like <laughs> oh, totally. out there and weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, like it feels authentic, even though I can't actually verify that as a non-Jewish person. But like, man, like there's just like Jewish slang and stuff, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds really good the way you're saying it. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure, you know, I I, I really love the parents, uh, casting as a Polly Draper and a Fred Melamed, mm-hmm. and like apparently there's a little bit of riffing for some of those some of their lines, but. Uh, They're they're perfect the way they just completely harass and embarrass their daughter, you know? And I mean, Rachel Sano as Danielle, as our lead, I think she does a really good job of communicating this kind of weird inner turmoil while trying to play it cool and slowly failing at just about everything she needs to do in this situation. You know, again, can be anxiety and cringe inducing to watch but man is it really funny honestly when you you think about it and she also is re-teaming up with uh ms elligan they're making a a comedy movie called bottoms so i'm looking forward to seeing more from these two
0: yeah no for sure um wait so
1: tell me tell me about kim tell me about diana agron she plays the wife of the sugar daddy
0: yeah so she plays quinn for bray in glee right and that that's how i first Came to know her, and she's she's great in Glee as basically like the, the popular cheerleader, Barbie doll type who's you know mm. dating the jock, whatever. Um, and she's supposed to be the foil to, um, yeah, I'm forgetting her name uh, from Glee, the, the Lee Michelle, Lee Michelle, yes. Yeah. And she does it really well. What I really love about her in this, and what I think is so good, is she she knows something is going on, but she plays it so cool and i find her to be so fucking likable in this role even though she's supposed to play this like you know upper east side rich snob who yeah. should not be relatable and all i'm thinking this is like she is playing it so cool calm and collected when she knows that her husband is obviously has something going on here that's, that's nefarious and i just think her delivery on a lot of things is so like direct but like indirect at the same time just really well done what did you think about her in this role
1: yeah no i, I thought i thought she was really good really good for sure like the, the way she's like subtle like side eye which yeah, is like yeah. assessing the situation as she's hearing people talk and is like huh what the fuck yeah why do you have the same bracelet as me you know stuff like that <laughs> um and then really at the end where it's like oh no no we'll, we, we'll, we got a car coming like we we'll can call an uber and it's like uh, and they just go in the van just completely defeated at the end yeah. it's oh it's tremendous
0: i really loved the when she was like no she's a babysitter she can do this like and <laughs> like just the way she kept like harking harping, at, harping at that i was like oh shit like this is but I, that also felt so real like if you were like trying to catch someone or something like that you're just like no like that's they they can do this it's what they said yeah. they are like really uh really liked her in this and i haven't seen her in a lot of things so just kind of seeing her back in and doing something like this again is really cool
1: also a really good moment for uh between rachel and molly gordon where they first talk about kim and they're like oh she's so beautiful she's like the definition of beauty to me and rachel's like oh no she's like totally like fine and normal And it's like no dude she's like really really hot and the movie does a really good job of like highlighting that i think in a tasteful way and like having the characters play off of that you know really good not to mention yeah i'm the bisexual nature to it all. You have this relationship to an ex fling, also being there, right? Like, I, I can't imagine what it would it, have been like to be in uh, Rachel's position, right? Because you have your ex ex lover in addition to your current sugar daddy in the same room with your parents. Mm-hmm. Oh man, so good. Yeah, it's a lot.
0: <laughs> um, Check out Shiva Baby, Dave. What should people be watching for next week?
1: Yeah, we got a hell of shit, man. Oscar predictions time, finally. Um, been a while uh mayor of east town the kate winslet hbo show which is supposed to be quite good it's supposed to be better than the nevers so excited to watch that uh we'll also talk about made for love the hbo max show chris miliardi and greta van vliet's second studio album the saviors of rock and roll <laughs> let's go
0: uh we'll be uh we'll be talking about it all hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod follow us at nostalgiaPod on twitter and uh yeah soundcloud.com slash for the rest long live dmx